Intent in life is not enough. Intent in life is not enough. Saying, oh, I really want that, but, but seeing results totally different is, is a problem. And we should approach our lives and our community and our relationships and, and all that we give ourselves to with a, with a healthy dose of help me see what's really happening. Because saying, oh, my heart was in the right place is not enough. It's not enough. And I thought, how do, we, how do we make sure we as a community are doing what, what we intend to do? And one of the ways we do that is we go back to Jesus himself and we look at his teaching. And he's got a bunch of people on a mountain. He's taken them away from the crowds. They're his followers. And he teaches them, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he describes them what the blessed life, what the happy life, what the good life is all about, the kind of person that enjoys the good life. And then he says something remarkable. He says, those people, they are like salt and they're like light. That's what they're like. And then he describes all the things that they give themselves to such that they would build their home on a rock, on a, on a sure foundation. So that when the storms of life come, global pandemics, you know, final minutes of the semi-final, when the storms come, they stand on the rock. They stand on the rock. And so we're just looking at a little segment of it, the salt and the light part. And then we're going to be looking at some more teaching in the next three weeks. But the big idea of doing this is to just make sure that our hearts aren't in the right place, but we, we're actually way off track. Just make sure that a message that was for there and then is, is actually a message for here and now. So let's read it together. Salt and light, Jesus describing to his apprentices what, what it would be like for them to be in the world. Matthew 5 from verse 13 onwards. Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is God's word for us today. And the structure is quite simple. Uh, we've looked at it already last week, and so we're not going to delve too much into what was covered. We're just going to ask these questions. How? How do you become salt and light? How does that happen? How do, how do you get these characteristics? Why is it so hard sometimes to truly believe that we are salt and light as a community? And then we're going to apply it for us today. So just to confirm, Jesus did say that his apprentices, the people gathered, were salt and light. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's not describing something we're trying to become. He's, he's announcing that is who you are if you follow me, if you are my apprentices, if you are my disciples. And I just wanted to show you just how relevant this is for us in Seapoint, um, Greenpoint. You'll notice that is Cafe Neo. There is the lighthouse, the lighthouse, and there is salt. So you've got the two combination. Right now, salt is busy rusting your car. Right now, it is in the air, rusting your car. That's why your car will be less valuable having it on the Atlantic seaboard. But it's a small price to pay. And here's my question for you around, uh, even if you have just seen these concepts of Jesus for the first time, what do you think Jesus is getting at when he says you're salt and you're light? What, what are some of the things? These are enduring metaphors that 2,000 years later we're talking about. What is it about salt? What is it about light? And why is it hard to be salt and light? Um, this, by the way, is not a rhetorical question. You've got two minutes to talk to the person here around you. What does salt and light mean for you? Why did Jesus use it as a metaphor? Go. Two minutes starts now. Okay.
So now what's going to happen, Kyle's got a roving microphone. If you would like to nominate someone to speak. <laughs> That's a joke. Relax, relax. It's not going to happen. I hope something of your discussion was that by definition, salt has to be salty, right? There's no such thing as the non-salty salt, right? That, that is really what it's all about. And likewise, light. There's no non-light light. Light is meant to be light. It's of the very essence. And that's what Jesus is really getting at here. Let me just press a little bit on salt. I mean, salt is something you need for life. It's required. And your body doesn't produce salt. But it needs these sodium ions in it. Why? Because it helps maintain fluid in the blood cells. The doctors are nodding. And your small intestine needs it to absorb nutrients. And so what people would do is get their salt mainly from meat. And if they're an agricultural society, they would often follow animal tracks to find salt deposits because animals also needed this. Crucial to our life. And light, you know, if you've spent time when the sun goes down, you know how crucial light is. It's a game changer. Um, people used to sleep for 12 hours a day because there was no light. Can you imagine how tragically hard that life must have been for them? You read these, you read these books of people waking up at four and you think, wow, what self-discipline. Then you realize, no, these are the days before electricity. Like they went to bed at like whatever the time is now, you know, <laughs> so, you know seven o'clock. No wonder they spent for 12 hours. Eh? If you were picking two teams, you had them lined up and one person was there with a candle and light, you'd be like, they're on my team. Like that, that is how much of a game changer light is. And Jesus picks on these two metaphors for a reason. And he's confident in his apprentices, the people gathered on the mountain, that despite the fact that they're unqualified and quite unlikely, they are salt and light. He says, you guys are the salty people. You're the people bringing truth. I back you because you're following me. This is who you are. Now, we could hear that today and go, yeah, of course, that's who I am. That's Because we've all been raised on, on the diet of expressive individualism. We're like, I can be whoever I want to be. And this is what Jesus says, oh, great. But go back to those original followers, and they would have been thinking, hmm, Jesus, the Romans look a little bit more likely to be salt and light. These are the political authorities. They've got the whole kingdom down. They've reached far and wide, the Roman Empire, besides that little bit in Gaul with Asterix and Oblix. Besides that, they've conquered everyone. Well, the Greeks, the great thinkers about what it means to be the good life, the Stoics, Aristotle, Plato, these great thinkers, they've laid out Western civilization, given us democracy. I mean, they're the people with the big ideas. We're not those people on the mountain next to you. Or the, 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 the Jewish leaders, the, 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 the religion you come from, Jesus, they've got the thing locked down. The brilliantest students become apprentice rabbis. They study, and it's a lockdown system. You can't rock up in your 30s and be like, I want to be a rabbi. It's like too late. You, you, you're, not, you're not there. Those are the people, surely, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, they should be the authorities, salt and light. Why are you telling us that we are? But yet Jesus says it with authority. He says, no, that is who you're going to be. And he doesn't leave it a mystery when we ask the question, how? When we roll up our sleeves and say, but no, practically, Jesus, how does this work? Because for a time, he was here, God with us, present in the Middle East with a group of people around him. But he knew he was limited in time and he was limited in geography. And so he needed to leave and he needed to give someone else to his people who would be with him, not limited by geography, not limited by time, who'd be with him forever. And so let's just pick up a few areas where Jesus speaks about this and announces in advance what's going to happen. He's speaking to his disciples in John 14. This is Jesus' words. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So remember the difference, right? He's not saying, if you love me, you'll know my commandments, a content or want to keep my commandments, then no, you, you follow through on it. If you, if you love me, you keep my commandments. 
But then you go, well, how does that happen? He says, well, I'm going to ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is going, but He's sending another helper. And why this help is necessary is because this help is going to be everywhere and will be available forever. It's described here as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth, that how scandalous is this, will dwell with you and will be in you. God's promise to renovate you through his presence from the inside out. And so Jesus says that in advance of, of leaving, and we know he goes to the cross, he dies. He's raised in resurrection glory, but people are, are on the hunt for his followers, saying, it's all a hoax, he's not the real deal, he's trying to usurp kind of all the different systems, he's claiming to be God, he's been put to death for that claim, and his followers, quite frankly, are scared. They're cowering in a room, they want, they want some direction in all the chaos. And Acts chapter 1 captures the moment when Jesus is with them and he speaks to them. This is what Jesus says, he's, while staying with them, Jesus, or he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus promised before his death and resurrection, he's now on the other side of his death and resurrection, and he's reminding them, hey, remember I promised, there will come one who the Father's gonna send along with me, and you're going to be drenched in the presence of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it's a fact of history that this small, timid group of very scared people worried about persecution in Acts 1, in Acts 2, are out of that room, are telling the whole world about Jesus, proclaiming the good news, are facing unbelievable persecution because of that. And historians literally try to understand this and say, what happened? This minor Jewish cult has really taken over the world of religious ideas and has had the most adherents and followers to this day. What happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, which gave birth to this radical community that is represented by, by so many different tribes and tongues and cultures? And some people have argued, well, you know, it kind of became socially acceptable. You needed, you needed to have the Christianity tick on your resume to get all the jobs and get in there and have a political career, for instance, and it was like, no, 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 that's not true. That wasn't what happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. It was not at all socially acceptable. That came centuries later. In the raw materials of what was happening there, it was a very brave thing to go public like they did. The only thing that shifted, Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2, was the promised Holy Spirit that Christ spoke about came. Spirit of truth, that you know, that you know, that you know how life is meant to be lived right side up. That you know God, you know He made you, and He sent you on a mission, and you live your life in response to that. That's how salt and light gets created in each of our lives. And one final story, I could look at different passages, but here's the story. Jesus is away from the crowds. He often had these rhythms of deep engagement and love for people, and then just retreats and time with God. And He's on one of those retreat moments where He's praying, and He comes back, and one of His disciples, apprentices, says, Jesus, I see you going off like that. Like, Teach me, like, what do you do? What, what does that look like to be in relationship with God? What is prayer like? And Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. You can read it in, in Luke. And um, 
which captures the, the prayer. And we know the prayer. We know, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven. And it's interesting because he finishes the prayer and then he teaches them something about prayer. He says, you know, if you got visitors late at night and you had no food, you would go next door and knock on the door. And even if they're in bed, you'd keep knocking and they'd come out and you'd be like, what up, man? And you'd be like, food, come, I need food. And they'd be like, what, how are you doing this? And, you know, people would be annoyed, but they'd give you food. Even if you ask for, for you know, um, bread, they're not going to give you a rock. They're going to give you, they're going to give you what you need. Because even though they, they, they don't, you know, get terribly happy about the experience, they're going to give you good gifts. And then Jesus says this, if you then, who are evil, which is quite a nice thing to be called by Jesus, all of us, even though we're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. When people ask persistently, you give good gifts. How much more will the heavenly Father give, fill in the blank, to those who ask him? So remember, he's, he's gone away to be with the Father and pray. He's come back. The apprentice said, what happens when you're there? He teaches them what to pray. But more importantly, he says, I want your attitude just to be clear in this. When you're praying, you're asking a good father who, even though you're evil, you give good things. He's good. What do you think he's going to give you when you come and knock and you ask for perspective and when you make yourself available to God and say, God, I need you. I What's he going to give you? Fill in the blank. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you his presence forever. The spirit of truth, another helper, the comforter. He renovates you from the inside out. You're salty and you're, you've got light because that is who the Holy Spirit is and he's taken up residence in you. The people of God in those early years didn't have temples. They didn't really have priests. They didn't offer sacrifices. The Romans in the early days referred to them as atheists. The first time the word atheist was used because they didn't believe that they actually had a genuine religion because they were like, we're your priests. We're your sacrifices. We're your temples. And people were like, We've got a priest, Jesus. He sacrificed once for. And the temple where God dwells, that's us, baby. It's us because the Holy Spirit is in us. And when we gather, we are in his presence together. They couldn't believe it and they called them atheists because of that. And so Jesus' radical teaching about how you become salt and light is still true today. You become salt and light because he takes up residence in your life. As you bow your knee, he lavishes his righteousness, his grace on you. But this is hard. This is hard. I want to look at why this is hard. When I was chatting to a friend, he said, you know, the kingdom of God is quite invasive. It invades our lives, and we don't like invasions. I mean, if we're honest, we're like, I want to have my own kingdom with a little bit of God. But when God really starts coming in, I'm like, whoa, 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 we're not ready. We're not ready. The renovation was the kitchen. Don't come into the living room. Don't come into my office. That's not the deal with Jesus. Jesus is either king or he isn't. It's either his kingdom or it's your kingdom. And so it is hard. It is hard. And that's why Jesus can realistically say, hey, salt can lose its tastiness. Light can sometimes be so dim, it's almost like a basket has been thrown over it. It's possible to lose saltiness and for light to go hiding. And G.K. tested and wrote, I think quite compellingly, that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has often been found difficult and left untried. And that's why we can often find ourselves in a position, which I've kind of coined piggy in the middle, where you've lived enough of life to know about the cul-de-sacs and the darkness and where that can lead. You've told one lie followed by another lie, another lie, and you've got yourself into such a mess of unreality. You don't even know who you are, your identity. And so you go, I don't want to go down there anymore. But then when you look to Jesus and 
the invading kingdom of him ruling and reigning and moving in your life and renovating, becoming salt and light, that, that believing that you are living that out, you go, man, I don't know if I want to sign up for that either. And so you're stuck piggy in the middle between these two. And it's challenging. It's like probably the most miserable place you can be in. Either go full on for darkness or get into the light. But to stay pig in the middle is tough. And so here's some obstacles that can, can be described when we, when we are in that position. Obstacle number one, you know, Paul, I keep trying to be salt and light, but I fail. I've heard this speak. I've been in youth groups. I've, I try to be salt and light, but I fail. My question to you tonight would be, yes, we all do. But when you do, do you run to God or do you run away from God? you run to God or do you run away from God? And why that's a relevant question is, if you're running away from God, it might just be that you don't have the God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit as they truly are in mind. Here's what you could have going on, if I had to get into your head. This could be the story. You could say, you know, Paul, I don't really need a Savior. I don't really need God, because look at all the good things I've done for God. You know, there are a lot of people, Paul, they pray every week. They're always asking God for stuff. Not me. I'm legit. Nine out of ten most weeks. I'll have a few bad weeks, and that's when I'll ask, and I'll be very sorry that I had to bother God. But most of the time, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a, I want to be humble here, but at the same time, I've done really well most of my life. And I would say, you, you're in danger of trying to avoid needing a Savior by being your own Savior, by accumulating enough good works to, to make God sort of proud of you and and to be unlike all those strugglers over there. Now, I'm not against good self-leadership and taking initiative and, and stewarding our lives well. So I'm not, I'm not down on that. That is, that is what we're all called to do. But it gets dangerous when we fall short. And when we fall short, we can't approach God. Because the basis on which we approach God is not grace. It's not what Jesus has done for us. It's our own accomplishments. And when that gets tainted, we are avoiding God. See, we're all going to keep trying to be salt and light and failing, and the key moment is, do we run to God with that failure and try and understand what part of His goodness have we not accepted? What part of what Jesus has done for us have we just missed? What lie have we believed that has taken root and has led to action? We, we don't get curious about that. We just kind of avoid it for a few weeks and eventually come back to church and be like, hey, yo, just had some stuff up, but I'm back now. Jesus wants us to come to Him when things like that happen and to have the spirit of truth guide us and lead us to have brothers and sisters gather around. Yes, it is hard when we fall short, but we run to God, we run to community, not away, because that's the great news of the kingdom. We can do that. The second one which comes up is, Paul, you know, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be his apprentice, but that causes conflict with people I love and respect, people close to me. If I go for the kingdom, I go for Jesus, that, that means I'm going to have to do some stuff that people are going to be like, what, man, have you become judgmental? Don't you believe in loving people anymore? What are you doing? I feel judged by the changes you've made in my life. Are you saying I should make those changes? It can get quite hard and get quite tough. And maybe in that place, you can come along and say, oh, maybe I'm just gonna take down the saltiness level, take down the light level. It's kind of like a, a compromised halfway measure. And hopefully I won't ruffle too many feathers and Jesus will be kind of giving me a passing grade. I'll try to blend these two things. Brothers and sisters, that's a trap. There's no power in that. Because you're keeping the kingdom of, of Jesus, a loving, loving older brother, the Father God, the Holy Spirit, at, at, at arm's length, preferring the love and respect of others. You're caught piggy in the middle. 
And the reality is that following Jesus' kingdom puts us in opposition to a whole bunch of other kingdoms. And no matter how humble we are and how loving we are, there are just going to be people that are going to feel like your kingdom opposes theirs. Jesus spoke about this openly. He said, you're going to face persecution. You are going to be different. By nature, salt and light is different. And so if you're waiting for the perfect moment when everyone's just going to be like, oh, we see it. Well done. Work colleagues are standing up. You know, family members are like, woo they're cheering crowds. If you're waiting for that moment, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Piggy in the middle is going to describe your life because you are really not choosing the kingdom of everlasting God. We're choosing a, a, a cheap kind of praise of people. But I know that's a, a, alive in my own heart. And, and so we do need to be loving and kind to people. That's not what we, what we want to throw away. But in deep humility and with great confidence, we want to move towards people with truth and love, share out of the overflow of what we've received. It's a great gift we can give others. It's transformed lives, transformed by a God of love, loving them despite our differences. And in a world that says, no, if you have different opinions, you, you hate each other. We want to be like, no, we don't accept that. We love each other because he loved his enemies. We love all those that oppose us. Jesus um, has, has many things for us. Here's a third one um, that you, you might say, and maybe not out loud at church. I don't think you'd do it, but elsewhere you would. I love Jesus, but I am sure about church. I love Jesus, and I, I get on his, his, his um, teaching. I spend time with him, but not the church, not the church. I'm not sure about these individuals to left and right. Paul, when you asked me to talk to someone around, I was like, yo, 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 yo. Hope I haven't, you know, landed with a, a, a character here. I mean, even who's coming for lunch? How did you guys experience the drive? You're like, oh, who are these people? What are they going to be like? I mean, this is, this is what's inside of us. I think there's a Capetonian thing. When someone comes and chat to us, part of us is like, does this person not have friends? Why are they talking to me? There's like some judgmental thing that we have. It's, it's a strange thing, but it robs us of what Christ wanted. When he called people up the mountain. He said, hey, you, plural, are salt and light. You, plural, are being added into my family, into my kingdom. You can't do this on your own. And again, a rampant individualism would make us try to believe we could, but we, we can't. So don't believe the lies that are represented there. Jesus is going to be knitting us into families. He's going to be teaching us how to love people who are different to us and that do genuinely have different worldviews to us, and he's going to help us remain salt and light as we run to him whenever we fall short. Shortest point by far before we respond with the band tonight is asking this question, how do we respond? How do we, you know, as a group respond? I think the first is, hey, yes, it's great. Jesus has a message for us as salt and light, but let's not miss the messenger. Let's not miss Jesus. And I think part of the problem why we can miss Jesus is we might approach him as a savior. We might see him as an incredible man of history. We might be impressed by his teaching. There could be many things about him. But the one thing that we might be missing could be drawn out by this um, quick illustration. If I gave you a blank piece of paper and a pen, I said, write down for me the smartest people that have ever lived. Just do that in your mind. It's like, smartest people that have ever lived. Who would be written down there? Elon Musk seems pretty impressive, you know, electric cars, rockets. Uh, they're those people from Hidden Figures, Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan, unbelievable, days before computer, I mean, unbelievable, that was good. Bill Gates maybe cracks the nod, I don't know, 
what YouTuber you follow. I, I don't know. But the bottom line is you're going to write a whole bunch of people's names down, and I'm guessing Jesus Christ did not feature. He just generally doesn't. He's seen as an Eastern kind of figure of history, but when it comes to smart, on the ball, wisest person that ever lived, often he's left off the list. Dallas Willard, I'm going to put up a quote from him now, hopefully makes this point well. Dallas Willard writing about Jesus says, he's not just nice, he is brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. And then speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let us now hear his teachings on who has the good life, on who is among the truly blessed. You see, we stay piggy in the middle and we fail to embrace Jesus and we fail to embrace the life for the simple reason that we don't trust Jesus. And we need to be honest enough about that to interrogate the situation and say, what is it about him that means I don't fully embrace him and the helper that he sent? And just a little snippet for the next three weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on, on money and treasure and finance and, and how he makes sense of it. I've done my CA articles, all my exams, I've lectured finance for years, and I can say without a doubt, Jesus Christ has been the best teacher in my life on the role money plays and the security offers and the comfort it promises and the way in which it can, it can get itself into being my ultimate treasure. There's no one else who comes close. I appreciate Buffett and Munger and all the other people. I learned a lot from them. But Jesus by far has been the smartest person. He backs us up. And for three weeks, we can look at what he taught his apprentices. What do salty people do with money? What do people that have real truth and knowledge do with money? That's what Jesus teaches. And we can embrace what it looks like to be distinct in his image. And so for us today, could we follow Jesus, but like follow Jesus, not just know about Jesus, but like follow him going, I'm on the edge of my seat wanting to know what he says about these things. And just as that group of unlikely and unqualified people, not the Roman Empire, not the Greeks, not the Jews, they were the ones that became salt and light and took this message. That's who I want to be counted among. I want to follow Jesus. And secondly, I want to do it together. I want to do it with brothers and sisters who I can talk to about this. So what do you think he meant? And how can we live this out? And how can we love Seapoint and Cabos Bay and wherever you find yourself, the neighborhoods, the, the literal neighbors? the people that you had around your table for dinner, what would it look like to be salt and light in this city? Even the WhatsApp groups, people, even the WhatsApp groups, we can be loving in those groups. We can be salt and light in those places. And today we get an opportunity to respond in a song. And I'm gonna call the band up and will you please stand with me? And this song has uh, lyrics along the lines of um, a call to re-surrender, a moment to kind of reflect on perhaps where we've lost sight of Jesus and we've, we've forgotten the radical nature of his kingdom. When we put him front and center, we do so together, we, we transform, we're transformed. Will you stand with me and will you join me in a prayer which is one of the oldest prayers? It's a simple prayer. It says, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, regardless of our past experiences, regardless of our differences, we can all agree that we need more of God. And so now let's, let's invite his work amongst us. Let's pray together. 
God, as we respond now to your message, we invite the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we look at your teaching that we're salt and light and we know we fall short. But in this moment, we don't try and avoid that reality. We bring it before you in repentance. We say we're sorry. And we invite your spirit to fill us anew. Speak truth in love to our souls. Remind us of who we are. Come, Holy Spirit, and change us as we freshly surrender in response to the scandalous invitation of Jesus to follow him, to extend his kingdom in this world. Let's respond together.